You're listening to Radio Free Nashville, 107.1 and 103.7 FMLP, and streaming live at RadioFreeNashville.org. Welcome to the Veterans of Peace Radio Hour. Today we will discuss reparations from the historic epicenter of the slave trade, Charleston, South Carolina. But first, my name is Jim Walgermuth, and I'm here with fellow veterans Tom Gross and Harvey Bennett. Uh, Veterans for Peace is an international organization of military veterans and allies whose collective efforts are to build a culture of peace, humanity, and equality, and justice. For more information, just go to veteransforpeace.org. Now, if you want a copy of this show, just go to SoundCloud or Anchor Podcasts and search Veterans for Peace, the Hector Black Chapter. Now, Veterans for Peace, Radio Hour, and Radio Free Nashville are supported in part by the Green Party of Tennessee, bringing some common sense into the bipolar world of American politics. Go to greenpartyoftennessee.org. All right, happenings. We have a quick assignment for you. Call your member of Congress and ask them to ask the president to pardon the Kings Bay Plowshare 7. Those are the folks that stormed the nuclear base with their own blood in an effort to try and call attention to the problems with nuclear war. Okay. And while you're at it, add in reality winner, the Air Force whistleblower. I mean, after all, if Trump can pardon the Blackwater murderers, Biden can pardon these good people whose only crime was to try to bring attention to the danger of nuclear weapons. All right. So today, as we continue our celebration of Black History Month, we turn the show over to Harvey, who now lives in Charleston. And today we talk healing and reparations. So here is Harvey and his interview with Charleston activist Jason Jones. As they talk about relocating to Charleston and the history that was hidden. But what nobody told me about and what I was ignorant to was the deep history and uh, the roots of my people and the slavery and mm-hmm. the, the slave ports and how mm-hmm. everything that is tourist attracted in Charleston is based around slavery. Yeah. So it was definitely an eye opener. Yeah. But, it, you know, unfortunately, uh, the tourism board kind of soft pedals the slavery story. <laughs> they don't want they don't want to uh, have people thinking too much about that. So, uh, right. <clears throat> what really what really got a reaction out of me, and I was uh, thinking we could talk about a little bit just as sort of an entry point to talking more on a broader way about uh, Charleston and all the contradictions in this town. Uh, was this article in the Post and Courier, which I don't know if you saw uh, last week, uh, 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 this kind of old family, white woman, Charleston type, um, uh, <clears throat> got a big story on it because she uh, put a, a bronze plaque up on Broad Street on this building. <clears throat> they go on and on in this article about how she uh, <clears throat> came to, uh, through through this ancestry stuff, she discovered that she had these ancestors that had been slave traders and, and that her family had never said anything about that to her, that she'd always heard that they were just working class people, uh, didn't live in uh, fancy parts of town or anything, but maybe they didn't, but anyway, uh, they kind of make her into a big hero for doing this. Uh, and uh, I'll read you what the marker says. They, they have pictures of her standing there by it and uh, somebody from the College of Charleston, uh, where they have a center for the study of slavery in Charleston was there and some other people. And anyway, the, the uh, marker says Broad Street, site of domestic slave trade. During the first half of the 19th century, Many buildings on Broad Street between Church and East Bay Streets served as auction houses and private venues for the sale of human property. The firm of William Payne and Sons was likely the busiest auction house in the Low Country 
between 1808 and 1834. At this site, selling as agent for the city sheriff to collect court-ordered debts, Payne brokered the sale of more than 9,200 total enslaved people. While many were enslaved in town, many more worked in the surrounding countryside. Small private sales and large auctions took place both here and wherever the enslaved lived. At the largest sale in February 1819, Payne sold 367 enslaved human beings belonging to the estate of planter John Ball, who were valued at approximately $6.5 million in 2021 dollars. And then it gives the name of some of the brokers who continued the slave trade there after Payne's death, sponsored by the College of Charleston. So anyway, the way they frame the story is uh, that she was so motivated to do this, she did all the hard work of tracing everything <clears throat> because she wanted the whole truth to be told. And she said, if, you, if, we can, if we can have the whole truth, then we can begin to heal. <laughs> and I just said, uh, wait a minute. <laughs> You're going to do a lot more than uh, put up a marker to begin to heal. I think there's uh, an issue of uh, making amends before you get to that point. Justice, maybe. Um, but yeah. All these Post and Courier articles that talk about the his old slave history and that's neglected and all that, none of them make any reference or connection to what's going on right now and what the Black population here and everywhere in this country uh, the legacy that that impacts their lives. And, I can and definitely what, buy in. I can definitely buy into that, and I'll I'll double down on that by saying, everyone wants this utopic envisionment of of life, <laughs> and everyone holding hands and singing kumbaya and living Martin Luther King's dream right here, right now. Yeah, I will commend her for being willing to accept the whole story. I'll commend her for putting out the story as she learned it to be true, but it it's definitely a, a drop in the bucket for what we need to actually heal a community. Oh, what we need to heal, what we need to heal a, an entire an entire race of people that have been oppressed and and held back in their own developmental growth. I mean, we're just getting to the point now where we're seeing people that are actually capable of stepping outside of the environment they were brought up in and, and mm -hmm. trying to find avenues to do more. And even doing that, you're, you got about the same odds as becoming a famous NBA player, right. you know? Mm -hmm. So it's all, it's all pipe dreams and, and illusions as far as I'm concerned, as far as the system working in a means that will truthfully help the people. But even the work that we do here in Charleston it's just drops in the bucket. So yeah. any drop in the bucket, I will openly accept as long as it's not watered down and, and sold off as a great historic moment. Yeah. You know? Well, yeah, that kind of, I would say that's a, a natural response to anyone who has to live in the, in this racist society that is the United States. And uh, I know that you've been very active and in, in, uh, in the community and uh, you, uh, Elijah was talking about United Front. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yes, sir. Um, the United Front was birthed shortly after the duress downtown. Um, we saw, and I say we, myself, uh, Pastor Thomas Dixon, we were the first two to really network and get together. And mm -hmm. we talked about the division in the city, mm. the way the groups in the city were working against each other, mm. how there was no real face for representation of the voice of the city and how it was always going to allow people with outside interests and outside influences to step in and create havoc for their own personal interest gain 
versus actually doing mm. what's right by the communities that are represented from the, the greater Charleston area. So we started mm. trying to grab up like-minded groups and leaders and bring people together to sit down at the table to discuss what the agenda truthfully is um, and where we want to mm -hmm. go and how we're going to attack this. So um, we have groups from Charleston, inner city. Um, we have groups that deal with Black Lives Matter issues, such as Marcus McDonald. We have groups that deal with um, the, 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 the racist impact of the Confederacy, which is the owls. The ones that you see standing out the battery every Sunday that have been fighting yeah. that fight for years. Yeah. Um, we have humanitarian groups, uh, Charleston Uplift, that advocate for the homeless and the despaired. Mm -hmm. um, most recently, we've picked up a group of women um, without a name for their group yet, but these women are definitely for Black Lives Matter, the Black Lives Matter cause, but they're also for women's suffrage. Mm -hmm. um, we've got a humanitarian group slash activist group up in Berkeley County that's that's moving real hard in Berkeley, um, looking out for the underprivileged and the, er and the um, elderly in Berkeley County that have been overlooked during this COVID pandemic. Um, yeah. So a lot of different areas, a lot of different ways to attack. And more than that, you know, the strength in numbers, the strength in coming together and the strength of getting the collective mindset on how we're going to attack forward has been something game changing for the area. Yeah. Yeah, I know there's been a lot of uh, sort of outreach, you know, providing necessary services and things like food, clothing, et cetera, that Elijah's gotten active with as well. So, <clears throat> yes, sir. We we partnered. Um, we partnered and co-opted with a lot of the humanitarian groups here, and uh, Potluck in the Park is another big one that that we um participate in and help out with. Uh, that's uh, Ms. Donna Gill in downtown Charleston. Every Sunday, she goes out and feeds the homeless um, and then the underprivileged mm -hmm. side of the east side community. Yeah. Um, the clothing, like I said, that's all Aaron. Aaron's been in the the homeless advocacy forever. And the homelessness problem is a largely overlooked problem here in Charleston. Yeah. Um, and then it all kind of ties back into the same fight for recognition of individuals and people as a person, as a, as a human, you know, that ties into the Black Lives Matter cause, which brings us that same support that we can get for all these other causes into the Black Lives Matter cause and, and keep that united voice. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, you know, we learned shortly after getting here, I think we went to a couple of meetings with uh, Cajun, uh, Charleston Area Justice Ministry, and uh, we, we heard that uh, Charleston, and the Charleston area had the highest eviction rate in the entire country. Does that surprise you? No, not at all. Not at all. Um, eviction and um, tax levies. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Um, People can't pay that's these. How, that's how the gentrification of um, downtown Charleston, yeah. the gentrification that continues to happen right now, Mm -hmm. That's how it started, where people started losing their homes because they couldn't afford the taxes or they were forced to sell because they couldn't afford the property value. Yeah. Um, and it pushed across, pushed people into Mount Pleasant. They started getting pushed out of Mount Pleasant. Um, currently, we got, what, three protected communities in Mount Pleasant, Seven Mile, um, Six Mile, and the Phillips community. Mm. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, those communities are under historic preservation right now because the remainder of Mount Pleasant was pushed out into the Canehoy area, um, Canehoy mm. and Hugie. Mm. And there are black communities there that were from the city that have been pushed all the way out into the forest at this point. And now the forest is starting to build up and um, we're seeing suburbs pop up everywhere around the forest. So it's just one of those things. I mean, even the protections aren't really protecting the people that we have people on um, the Phillips community in Seven Mile right now that are getting ready to lose large portions of their, of their yard for the Highway 41 road widening project. Yeah, I think I've read about that. Yeah, we I, I took I took a big part in that with the Seven Mile community when they started um trying to get city council to stop this project from happening, but council has still continuously voted for the project. I believe there's a delay put on it to look at a few other things, but that's historically protected land that's going to be taken away from people. The last little pieces of land that they, that we've held on to here from people gentrified out of their communities. Yeah, we taken. Yeah, well, we've met people uh, uh, 
we've met black people from Charleston who who are not. Uh, I guess they might you you might call them middle class, but I mean they're working class people really, but uh, who grew up you know right down, kind of in the middle of town in this this house that they've been in their family for generations, and uh, a lot of people lose their uh, property because they don't have the kind of a title that the county will recognize. They're inherited. Uh, property i don't know in land too as well i don't know if you've run into that uh, oh yeah all the time uh-huh. that's uh that's par for the course down here and i yeah. mean if you look at it the average median rent in charleston countywide is like fourteen hundred dollars yeah and you're talking about and that's on a median of what like 900 square feet uh, yeah i mean <clears throat> so when you say middle class, we really have to define what middle class means in Charleston. Right. Because it, mm-hmm. the, the national middle class definitely does not match up with Charleston middle class. The statewide poverty yeah. line doesn't match up with what you need in Charleston to survive. That's right. Yeah. Um, what about uh, relationships with the police since you've been here? Have you seen any, uh, any improvements or any hope for a change there? I know there was the... Uh, <clears throat> audit that they had that uh, Cajun held over police profiling and use of force and uh, I just wonder if you have a feel um, for how that's been going. It's a love-hate relationship. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, again, like most of your listeners, yourself, I'm prior service. I wholeheartedly understand that that dedication it takes to put that uniform on and step out every day. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually come from a family of police officers, um, police officers and military servicemen. That's how our family kept it's, you know, in North Carolina, it's upper middle to upper middle class status and, and community standing. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, it, by definition for law enforcement, you know, you're there to serve and protect the public and keep the peace I think we're falling short on the keep the peace line I think we're falling short on, on protectors of the of the general public line yeah. and you know the, the 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 commonality behind all of that is the preconceptions based off of racial driven initiatives yeah. and momentums um, yeah. I don't know if you saw the most recent story that just surfaced I mean it's not recent it was shortly after the Floyd death last year um, the police chief in Georgia, a uh, municipality right outside of Atlanta, um, was caught on his body cam that he didn't know how to work it, and was caught basically saying, you know, or basically openly making racist slurs and race and, and promoting racial in, innuendos to one of his subordinates. Yeah. Uh, um, that mentality is true in a lot, especially in the South. Oh yeah, and until until our police departments can truthfully go in and fix, you know, yes, Charleston did a racial bias audit. They mm-hmm. used the outside entity to come in and do it, but we haven't seen fruits of that labor yet. Uh, we yeah. we have the we have the um board for racial reconciliation and equity or equality inclusion, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. but we haven't yet seen the fruits of those labors. Um, there is a a deadline coming up for suggestions to be made to that board to push into the city for ordinances. And um, that falls into all of the areas that, that we're looking at for this economical social despair. Yeah. So, you know, everything from housing all the way up to police relations. Yeah. So we'll see what, we'll see what comes from this. I'm not going to judge them yet. Um, we've had our bumps and our bruises and my, one of my primary missions here was to show the police that, we were not here as the enemy. We were not here as a destructive force. We're here as a, a group of people that are tired and upset. A group of people that are that are exhausted from what we see on television daily, from yeah. what we've experienced over our lifetimes, mm-hmm. from what we know our parents and our grandparents and their parents and their grandparents went through. You yeah. know, we're we're an exhausted group of people. And we're just looking for a slither, a semblance of an equality to blossom into something more. Um, 
You know, unfortunately in Charleston, it always goes back to May 30th or 31st. That always becomes the headline talking point. Well, um, and that was the the quote unquote riot downtown. Yeah, yeah. And I can understand the pain point from the merchants. I can understand the pain point from the city. I can understand the lost revenue and the the damage and destruction, the the insurance payouts that had to be made to to cover those damages. But I've also raised the question to the Main Street Market, or excuse me, the King Street Market Association and the King Street uh, vendors as to what would you have done differently to let the people know you were here for them so they would have never come on your street? What could you do in the future? How are you investing back into the city to let these people know that you're here for them? Their answer is we provide jobs. My question is then, are your jobs providing a livable wage? Are you investing into those people so much so that they're not having to work two and three jobs to survive? Mm -hmm. Are you promoting from within? Are you Mm -hmm. hiring locals first? people that are from here um those questions always go unanswered to the fullest but we definitely have opened that dialect and i'm actually looking to some of those businesses now to start investing back into the communities we're in a new year where i'm trying to get people to taper off the streets and get more community involved Mm -hmm. um we're working a lot on policies uh we just had the the um ordinance or excuse me the resolution pushed here in the city to denounce hate groups um we're working to have the verbiage on that cleaned up and amended but it's there Mm. and we're a lot of behind the scenes in the city of charleston um that same resolution actually just made its way out to greenville and to the state house so hopefully we can make some statewide changes as well but and so it's a lot of different areas of push and just really truthfully hoping to get the city to to truthfully hear the people and finally take a stance and posture in the means of, you know, equality. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm really, uh, uh, I guess I wouldn't say surprised, but just, uh, I mean, not every, you know, in every city there's been, um, uh, trend back to resegregation, Nashville had a pretty integrated school system in the 80s, and now it's, uh, you know, getting more and more uh, segregated. Uh, but I think that's been a big, seems like it's been a big problem uh, in Charleston that there's just not any kind of uh, equity in terms of the school the resources. Uh, that Isn't that amazing, seeing as how you know, some of the the largest schools downtown are around some of the most gentrified neighborhoods, yet the population of the school doesn't re- reflect the neighborhoods that are, are sitting right there around them. Yeah. So um, that's another fight that we had, uh, Coalition with Kids. Mm-hmm. We were really fighting and pushing against the school board, uh, nominees for Coalition for Kids. Um, a matter of fact, See if I can pull this up real quick. There is a lawsuit right now against Coalition for Kids on defamation. Um, I believe everybody's been served for that one. Um, and that was pushed and pressed by Kevin Hollinshed. There, there will actually be a, be a big conference about that tomorrow. Um, we were capable of getting Erica Coakley elected for school board that she was one of the original members of the United Front. Uh-huh. Um, so she got elected to coalition or to the school board. She beat out some coalition for kids candidates, and I, she was actually front runner, which was amazing. Like without even a reasonable doubt of her run on her seat, she won by a large margin. Um, well, that that lost, sheriff race was pretty exciting. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Christian Graziano. Yeah. Um. That's that's my hope for police relations. That I I didn't even mention that when we talked about police relations. Christian is my hope for police relations. Mm-hmm. I think as sheriff, um, and some of the the reform she's already pulled with the um moving away from that ICE agreement. Yeah. Uh, some other changes she's making aside the jail system and some other progressive reforms that she threw aside inside of her first week, and mm-hmm. see. Yeah. And we're working towards so much more right now 
she came in on fire and I I have a lot of trust that she's going to be the person that's going to carry us to where we need to be and get the rest of the county to fall mm -hmm. in line. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> and then is anything happening uh, as far as affordable housing that is hopeful? Not hopeful as far as policy change and mm -hmm. and um safety nets that we wanted to see mm -hmm. um there was a big fall through on the census last year um there was a lot of hoa money that was um diverted away from where it should have been or she's not hoa um hud hud money there was a lot of hud money that was diverted away from the affordable housing areas that should have mm -hmm. remained where it was at because of the, the decrease in the census. Yeah. So we're looking at that and we're waiting right now to see where this all falls in. And we're just heavily working to invest back into those communities to, sh to show the communities that we care so that we can stop some of the, the inner community violences that do happen. When, you know, you got a whole bunch of people that are despaired sitting on top of each other, you know, inside of these um, project settings. Mm -hmm. But we have high hopes that we will be able to make those changes happen. Gave a good uh, kind of overview of what he and uh, an, an alliance of other groups called the United Front are doing to try to uh, repair some of the uh, damage that black communities are having to live with every day. And he, he even refers to it as drops in the bucket Even right though it's you know it's a great effort by a lot of people you know, it doesn't begin to really uh, be the kind of change that's needed for these communities to uh, reclaim their dignity and their and become whole uh, as a people and that you know that's a you know a vast undertaking that requires a commitment on much higher levels <laughs> than that. And uh, that's, uh, that is addressed in our uh, segments that follow uh, from the panel on reparations that- You also had a clip that you wanted to share with regard, uh, with regard to a lady named Margaret Seidler? Yeah, so Margaret Seidler is the person that I was uh, referring to when I talked to Jason about this Post and Courier article. Uh, that's what kind of triggered it all for me. This was, uh, Oh, I guess it's been over a week now since I saw this article, but it was a picture of her next to a bronze marker on a building on Broad Street, which is a, uh, one of the main streets in Charleston that's a, sort of a busy uh, business area, lots of shops, lots of uh, tourist type attractions, uh, banks, <clears throat> and uh, she uh, she had a marker made, a bronze marker made, put on that building to identify it as the site of uh, domestic slave trade <clears throat> uh, back in uh, the 19th century. Uh, and she did that because she had discovered uh, <clears throat> a year or two ago that uh, she, un unbeknownst to her, it was the uh, great, great, great granddaughter of a notorious slave trader. William Payne. <clears throat> so this marker uh, identifies this building, the stately looking building is actually a uh, center for the domestic slave trade. And I, I actually read the marker on my interview with Jason. So, uh, but what struck me about the story and it's they're quite long and detailed about what they call the forsaken history of Charleston or the uh, suppressed history, uh, basically having to do with the slave trade and how how so much of that is invisible. There are no no markers, nothing uh, for people to uh, realize what they're looking at <clears throat> because now they have some other functions. And uh, of course, Charleston is the number one tourist destination in the country, according to uh, Condé Nast Traveler. And the last thing they want to do is uh, sully their image with uh, Mark is all about the slave trade, <laughs> but that was basically the reason for Charleston's existence was the slave trade. And she comes right out and says that. 
you know, by unearthing this history and then putting it out there in public so that everybody could see it and has to be acknowledge it, that that was going to lead to healing. She didn't say who, who was going to heal from that, but uh, she felt like that was, you know, that's what we need is the truth. And that she, uh, you know, there, it never, none of these uh, articles from the Post and Courier ever go beyond that and say, and so what are we called to do as a community to write this, to make amends for this tragic history in this city? Uh, you know. Just strolling along Broad Street now, and my having strolled along Broad Street for 68 years, what you just see is a, a beautiful historic business center, which it has been for centuries. Margaret Seidler is a native Charlestonian. Through research, she learned later in life that she was related to William Payne, who once brokered enslaved people from an auction house on Broad Street. What specifically you would see at the site of my fourth great-grandfather, William Payne, is you would see a, a three-story brick building with arched windows. And beside it, you would see a more ornate building, also about three stories. So these two buildings that were present, in fact, are one building now in terms of the facade has been combined. And so what you would see is a new stucco white building with beautiful white columns, uh, very regal. And it would belie the fact of the sort of business that took place there for decades. I've been told by uh, a local historian that there were often traffic jams on Broad Street. And it was jammed in many cases because of the number of enslaved who were being moved around for sale. What you'd also see is a, a firsthand understanding that this was the business of Charleston. Um, most of what we've talked about in terms of our history here is the transatlantic trade of enslaved people from Africa. And what the research that I've done on my family has shown me is that there was a, a, a very huge another element of the business, and that was the domestic slave trade. We've mentioned the name William Payne. Who was he? What happened to him, though, after he had this little retail business, he went bankrupt in 1803, and he was married. He had four children, and he came up with the idea that he would become a broker, an auctioneer, also known then as a vendue master. And so he quickly got himself back in financial solvency by the brokering of enslaved people through estates, through debts. He, for many years, acted as an agent for the city of Charleston for its sheriff. Um, he also uh, made money managing runaways, seeking runaways, and then making sure they went to the workhouse. I mean, he made a business of it. And he, of, of his four children, two of his sons actually went in the business with him. The work that I've done is to tell a more complete truth here, recognizing um, what our families, our families did to the enslaved. I hear many people say, well, you know, you didn't have anything to do with that. Well, certainly that's true. What I can do, though, I can't change history and I can't change the past. What I can do is I can make sure that the history is told, that it's not lost, because this is the truth of Charleston. In these discussions, what we're talking about is those layers of history that people don't see when they're walking the streets of, of Charleston. And I'm wondering, this discovery and all of this research, how has this changed how you see the city? <laughs> it's just, it's a sadness. <clears throat> and it just creates... Um, a deeper understanding of, you know, where we are as not only a, a community, but certainly where we are as a country and the need for truth to be told and healing to take place and relationships to be built. And, and, and that's been, that really has been my personal mission since the massacre at Mother Emanuel. 
that really cemented for me that for our country to be healthy, we have got to figure out a positive way to deal with our past. Then you sent me um, this uh, link to uh, this panel with a discussion on reparations. And I know you wanted to play um, several several of the speakers there. Introduce that yeah. for us. Okay. Uh, there, we saw that there was a uh, panel being held on, uh, on reparations. This was a panel that was uh, part of a congressional mandate for uh, coming out of what they call HR 40, which is a house resolution that was introduced in 1989 by John Conyers, been introduced every year since and uh, <clears throat> with no action taken on reparations. And uh, so they decided they were gonna have uh, panels all over the country, uh, primarily in, in locations that had connections to the slave trade, but also uh, cities where there were large uh, African-American populations and there was racial injustice. So Charleston was chosen as the first city. And it was obvious why, because Charleston was the, <clears throat> the major entry for the tra transatlantic slave trade in the United States mm -hmm. and was one of the largest uh, sites for the domestic slave trade, which happened after transatlantic slavery was uh, uh, made illegal in 1804, I believe it was. So, <clears throat> yeah. so their history is uh, uh, places it at the top of the list. <laughs> yeah. And the speakers of this panel really was a tremendous education for us uh, not a, only about Charleston's history, but also about the whole ideal of reparations and how misunderstood that is and how necessary it is. And to me, that was the reason I wanted to highlight that was to contrast that with how the Post and Courier framed it. Right. Something that's you know interesting for white folks to know about <laughs> and that we ought to know about it, but what should we do about it? Well, that's, you know, what she just said was, everyone told me I had nothing to do with that. And she said, I can't change the past, but I can present the truth. But she didn't go any further than that. You know? Right, right. And well, you, you picked just four, yeah, you picked four speakers. Turn over the podium now to Dr. Ron Daniels from the National African-American Reparations Commission. Let me say a word about the National African-American Reparations Commission, because you may not have been aware that there is a National African-American Reparations Commission. It is comprised of outstanding, an outstanding assembly of dedicated faith leaders, scholars, activists, advocates, and organizers, many of whom have been working on this issue for decades. The National African American Reparations Commission, NARC, has, has established a 10-point reparations program. That's right, a 10-point reparations program. People are not aware that it exists, but we're here today to let you know it exists. It is designed to serve as a framework and a frame of reference for the public discourse which is erupting positively about the debate on reparations. Also, I must say, not simply about a discussion about a check. A lot of people reduce it to that as if that's something that can be dismissed. That's not insignificant, but I'm here to tell you that when you look at the National African North, North 10 Point Program, it's about the collective healing and repair restoration and revitalization of black communities as a whole. We want to be made whole as an entire community. That's what we're fighting for. So if you go to the website, go to the website ibw21.org, ibw21.org, the extensive online reparations resource center of anywhere in the world. NARC is also obviously strongly committed to supporting HR 40 as a tool for information, education, organizing, and action. So again, from the beginning, we are here because of the history of Charleston, but let me also say that we're here because we're encouraged and inspired by being here. This morning, we went to the monument of Denmark Vesey and had a ceremony on that sacred soil. We were inspired by that. And we want you to continue to be inspired. We want you to know that as we come to pay our respects, we are inspired by those of you who have been on the battlefield, your ancestors, and, and, and with the conviction that we will.
continue. John Conyers introduced H.R. 40, the bill to study reparations proposals, and we'll talk about how that's been changed since from 1989 in, under the instigation of a brother named Reparations Ray. And he did it over and over and over again. It was such a powerful thing that it inspired people all over the world, including our brothers and sisters in the Caribbean. All of the heads of state in the Caribbean collectively made the decision to demand of the former colonial powers reparations for native genocide and African enslavement. They took that decision in the Caribbean. Dr. Ron Daniels, yeah. that was a very important discussion. And you also mentioned... Uh, or you also provided a clip of um, uh, Dr. O. Right. It's uh, Edo Ofunuyi. He's the director of the Gullah Society. And uh, all the tourists that come to Charleston hear about Gullah culture and Gullah cuisine and Gullah Geechee this and Gullah Geechee that. But uh, <clears throat> they never, they never uh, really hear about uh, the Gullah people and, and how they fought to preserve their own culture, and which was being uh, systematically erased uh, by slavery. Who is the founder okay. and director of the Gullah Society. Yes, it's time for change in Charleston. We need change right now. I'll begin with a poem. 36 Risen none fallen down, 36 risen, all wearing a crown, 36 risen, let the angels trumpet sound, voices in song all through the night, singing freedom, freedom, let all take flight, 9,000 strong they might have been, triumphantly waging battle against the slavery sin, their names are personage, his story never told, sentenced to hang until death claimed their souls. 36 risen, no walls or quilts to their fame. 36 risen, spirits wandering unclaimed. In the great city pronounced holy indeed, Denmark's grave is unmarked and his people not freed. Valor dishonored but unbeaten they stood as the floors of the gallows broke loose to no good. No statues in city square, not even a bust. It is the peril that haunts us, the righteous judged by the unjust. I call history to repentance that we might lay to rest the strife between the two. It was our courage to die for freedom that brought our people through. O oh, great warriors, into heaven your spirits renown release. We bless you and we thank you, and we pray your souls may now know peace. Amen. Charleston, South Carolina, a city and a people that live in fear, a people that were forced to labor for slavers and who got nothing in return for their toil, a people that was beaten down and forced to acculturate to unfamiliar laws and customs, giving up their languages, life ways and traditions. We here in Charleston are the descendants of those people. I'm a from here. Some of you were introduced as Binya. Some of you have been introduced as Kumya. I'm a Frumya. While some were free, some were weary and tired of their bondage and were willing to organize for freedom, a freedom that we have chased for centuries. We are here today still in pursuit of that freedom and payment for our many years of toil. Payment for all the destruction and damage that was done to our people and our communities, a payment long overdue. Our people here in Charleston continue to exhibit fear, a fear that was beaten into them, a fear that they now carry around, unknowingly some of them, a fear that we have to overcome. We remain disorganized here in Charleston and we are still disempowered here in Charleston. We need a change. We need to be called to action. And today, 
This is a call to action. We know who Denmark VC was, and we know who we are. We know what he intended to do to them, and we know what they did to him. I say this is a creative moment, for it recognizes that VC was no wild-eyed, monster-minded racist. He was not a black against white people. He was a liberator who God had sent to set the people free from oppression. On this occasion, fellow society celebrate Denmark Vesey and those unacknowledged souls and invoke their spirits to be with us here this today to witness this special occasion when we call for reparation for the work of our ancestors, for the labor of our ancestors. My prayer is that those of us gathered here today will honor those ancestors and celebrate them and that we can move forward with what we need to move forward. We need reparation to move forward. When you are a from you, then you've got a lot to say about what should or shouldn't happen. So, all right, now you mentioned a Millicent Brown also. Yes, uh, she's a, a native of Charleston, uh, African-American, grew up in a family that was active in NAACP. Uh, she has a PhD. She's, uh, <clears throat> she's very articulate and very, uh, very much uh, militant about the, the needs to uh, move to the kind of radical action to uh, make the uh, African com American community whole to, re to restore their dignity, to repair the damage that's been done and, uh, and to compensate them for what's been done. Well, uh, let's listen to what she has to say. Three points I'm gonna try to make very quickly um, because we have so much to say and we wanna hear very much from the audience. And so um, let me start by saying that especially to those in the audience who I consider to be young. In that case, for me, that means 50 years or younger, okay? The young. Um, I hope my presence and, and, and my reflections um, serve as a reminder that change and this job of social justice is not only hard, but it takes time. It always has, and it probably always will. I was 20 years old as a college student when all of the background I had had growing up in an NAACP household and being exposed to all the thinking of the middle of the 20th century, um, when I found this, this idea about reparations, um, I was guided by a woman that was recognized. Um, her name is Attorney Afia Wangaza, um, from, uh, who is in Greenville now. But we were college students together, and we were listening to the thinkers and the activists of our time, and this idea that Yes, you can fight for integration and you can fight for, for equalization and you, you know, and we were a part of a generation that said, you know, it's got to be bigger. There's got to be something more fundamental about making America face up to its sins. And somehow, even as a 20 year old, I understood and I have spent my life seeking, listening to, trying to be helpful in advancing that argument that reparations is a way to grapple how it will be done, when it will be done. At 20, I certainly didn't know, but I took it seriously. I was laughed at, we were laughed at, and my thought today is to say, please, ladies and gentlemen of whatever age, this is not a joke. 
Don't dismiss what we're talking about today as, oh, impossible. That's never going to happen. We're past that now. We are really ready to confront how is it we're going to make this nation held it, hold itself accountable for the inhumanity that I don't think anybody in this room today believes was ever justified or can be corrected. And there really is no price that can ever be paid for the tragedy that was suffered through slavery. There is no price. I am asking that as we talk about Charleston and, and South Carolina especially, please don't be afraid of the concept. In whatever circles you find yourself, whether it's a church circle, a book club, um, a social gathering, um, a business organization, don't be afraid of confronting the concept. It's confusing. It is going to be hard to figure out what really is the best path forward. H.R. 40 is an important part, but it must be understood fully. Talk about it. Talk about it among yourselves, with your family members, but again, with your social networks. Make these churches talk about how they can cater to our souls, but we have people on the streets. We have people who are homeless and hungry. And we're saying we need to be honest about what are root causes and root answers that are systemic. That was Millicent Brown. And like you said, she is. Um, Militant, militant, millicent. As far as as far as the need for reparations, and then the the last person you referred uh, referred me to was Patricia Newton. Yes, uh, <clears throat> she's a neuropsychiatrist, and she's uh, done a lot of research and been familiar with a lot of the research uh, on uh, what they call epigenetics, which is the environmental uh, effects on people's genetic uh, expressions. Yeah. <clears throat> it's more than just the genes. It's how, those, how, those, how the genetic expression is affected by one's own uh, personal stressors and, and experience. Here she is. And it says that a mind that has been attacked and conquered is easily led away from the path of its own soul. And so part of the issue can be brought to modern terms uh, from Funkadelic. If you free your mind, your ass will follow. And so part of the problem that we're dealing with is we're not conscious in today's world of the epigenetic issues related to the enslavement and trauma in general. And what do I mean by that? When I say epigenetic, I'm talking about on top of, layered on top of, outside of what is transmitted through the DNA. What we have now is a whole body of study in medicine that talks about the effects that environment has up on the expression of the genetic pool. And so what we're seeing is that as a result of the enslavement process, the traumatic effects of that enslavement process, we have going forward within our generations of both African people and in non-African people, I wanna come back to that too, is the fact that we are wearing the vestiges, the vestiges through through the inflammation created by the trauma of slavery through the genetic expression of the environment that causes increases in cancer, increases in, in diabetes, increases in hypertension, and also the memory that transmits into free fear. And for those people who were the perpetrators of the enslavement process, their memory is not without trauma either. So we need to understand when we're talking about reparatory justice and we're talking about reparations, that it will be a healing for non-African people to also be a part 
of that process because they are affected as well in many ways, not necessarily in the ways that we are, but they are affected in a way that transmits itself to certain kinds of disease manifestations that they're not even conscious of. And so we have to understand that that dealing with reparatory justice is a national issue, not just a black folks issue, not just a folk on the plantation issue. It's an issue that talks about the healing of America so that the next generations that come forward are not victimized by the expressions within their DNA and RNA of the vestiges that make us not healthy, that make us not immune to mental disorders, that keep our children impacted with opiate disorders, and all these other kinds of manifestations that everybody is talking about, which are Band-Aids. They're not dealing with the underlying problem. So you can put a Band-Aid over a wound, but if it's high enough and big enough, the bleed is still going to occur. And so what has happened with us, Dr. D, and for you in the audience, is that we are living the vestiges of what this process has done neurobiologically, neuropsychologically, and spiritually. And so what has occurred is the manifestations of disorder and disease as a result of the expression on the genetic pool of trauma and racism. So we have to leave it there, but just a quick take. Reparations are needed. Why? To heal not only the black community, but the white community. Our ancestors who perpetrated or were complicit in this crime of enslavement and Jim Crow. And us today, whose silence and inaction perpetuate injustice. The question is how? And I will leave that up to you to determine what you think is appropriate for reparations. But clearly, it's not just a plaque. So with that, take care, have a good week, and understand and look forward to a change. Because it's coming. Carry on 
It's been a long, a long time coming, but I know a change gonna come. Oh, yes it will. 